We're going to be in 2 Peter 3 this morning. The last chapter as we wrap up our study in the letters of Peter. do today is uh, set the stage for the ending of Peter's second letter by talking for a moment about what the Bible is and what it is not. Um, hopefully it will make sense once we sort of get through everything. The Bible is not one uniformly written book. Now we believe that all of it is inspired by God, but that doesn't mean it all works the same way. For starters, we have a total of 66 books recorded in three languages across three continents over several thousand years. By comparison, consider reading something that was written in English only a few hundred years ago, right? Uh, like one of my favorites from 1850, which is Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. Here's a quote from that story as an example of what I'm talking about. It is curious, I'm sorry, it is a curious subject of observation and inquiry, whether hatred and love be not the same thing at bottom. Each in its utmost development suppose a high degree of intimacy and heart knowledge. Each renders one individual dependent for the food of his affections and spiritual life upon another. Each leaves the passionate lover, or the no less passionate hater, forlorn and desolate by the withdrawal of his object. I mean, that's English, right? But it doesn't sound like the English we use. Not really. I mean, we know probably most or all of those words, but we don't use them in everyday conversation. No one talks like that anymore. Language changes. So imagine then what it must be like for us to pick up a Bible that was written in different languages thousands of years ago, right? We may read it in English, but we have already lost a little bit of its meaning when we do. And that's why I consistently try and bring out the words in Hebrew and Greek and sometimes even Aramaic that find their way in there. And, and discuss their fuller meanings so that you see sort of more of what it means when it, it's used there. But we also have to consider that it was written by more than 40 authors. It includes at least 10 different types of genres of literature. I mean, there's poetry, there's narrative stories, there's history, letters of encouragement like the one we're reading, uh, parables, sermons, prophecy, and more. There's quite a bit of overlap, even within the books themselves, and sometimes even within chapters of those books. Now, many, if not all, evangelicals were brought up or came to know Jesus in connection with a particular way of understanding the Bible. And I've had so many conversations about this that I can't even keep count. The general idea has been that we can just randomly pick up a Bible and read it and completely understand it. Um, but if that were true, why are there so many disagreements among people of faith about what it means? Not heretics, mind you. People who truly believe and follow Jesus yet can't agree about certain ideas. What do we do with that? I think the only thing we can do is take this seriously and really study the scriptures within their own setting. 
so that we might grasp the principles that are involved there. In other words, the language matters, the genre matters, the context matters, the historical setting that it's found in matters. Who wrote it and when and to whom and under what conditions, all of that matters. And I've been studying the Bible intensely for almost 30 years, and not only do I still have some questions, I have a bunch more that I didn't even start with. So when we look at a passage like the one we are about to look at, we have to sort of pump the brakes a little and pay close attention to all of these different things. We have to remember that Peter was not writing to us. He was writing to a mixed group of Jewish and Gentile believers living in the Roman Empire who all believed they were a part of Judaism. They would have all believed the temple in Jerusalem was the place where heaven and earth came together. Peter was writing about Hebrew concepts in Greek to a, a group of people who mostly spoke Greek. So there's already some things there. Peter's native language would have been Aramaic. So we have, we have concepts that matter going from Hebrew through Aramaic to Greek and then translated into English for us to read upon them. On top of all that, Peter was writing to a group of people who were being oppressed by the Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the known world at the time. And he was writing to people who, uh, for a lot of them, they were new believers. People whose faith was being co-opted by others for their own purposes. People who saw this young faith as a way to gain influence and bolster their own lifestyle. So as we wrap up our study in the letter of Peter this morning, let's keep all of this in mind. Because we are going to bump into it as we work our way through the passage. Follow along with me if you will. We're going to read in 2 Peter 3 beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since then all these things are to thus be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, 
because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks to them of these matters. But there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people, and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. And God bless the reading of His Word. Okay. So as Peter moved to conclude this letter, he once again reminds uh, the believers of the teaching they received from the apostles concerning Jesus. And he included the prophets because they bore witness concerning the entire story of Israel that led to the advent of Messiah. Peter knew that his time was short and he wanted to urge these believers to hold firm in those teachings. He didn't want them getting caught up in the heresies that were consistently floating around. And he again used the word stirring up, which we saw a couple of weeks ago in chapter 1. It means to wake fully from sleep. And that's what Peter wanted to make sure that he did. And this not only applied to them, but I think to us as well. We can get easily sidetracked from our calling and our purpose. We can get distracted and lulled into a sleepy routine where we just sort of exist. This is especially true when we are exhausted or overwhelmed. It's easy in this world with all the media and everything seemingly going wrong like all the time. It just becomes too much. And even though we live in a remote area out here with far fewer people than most places, we can experience this kind of emotional and spiritual fatigue here as well. It's easy to get to a point where we just don't want to engage with anyone or anything anymore. And that's natural in a way. We weren't created to be bombarded with negative information all the time. We weren't meant to carry the weight of the world. But that's why Jesus showed up and taught us a better way and then paved the way for us to follow him by going through the cross to the resurrection. Peter had to have all of this in mind when he warned these believers of the scoffers who would infiltrate their group. And the Greek word that Peter used there is empahites. It means a scoffer or mocker, one who is by implication a false teacher. We talked about this a week ago when we looked at what Peter had to say in chapter 2 about false teachers, which was really strong there. But here, Peter continued that idea, taking it sort of to its logical end. And he wanted these believers to be aware of what would happen to those who consistently mocked the promise of God and the Messiah. This is clear when Peter quoted them in verse 4, saying, 
Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. The idea being that Jesus wasn't coming back. That's what they were kind of getting at. And that there would be no judgment day. And because of those things, the implication is that because there's no return and no judgment, people can live however they want. We already saw that with these particular scoffers and heretics, it was all about power and self-indulgence. Peter answered this question by talking about water and fire. It seems a bit odd at first, but Peter's actually pulling from the Old Testament as he has been doing all through his letters. For example, in Psalm 50, verse 3 through 4, we read, Our God comes, he does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire, and around him a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge the people. But even more specifically, we have this scene in Daniel 7, and we've sort of talked about this before as well. In verses 9 through 10, it says, And I looked. And thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This then leads in that same chapter to a scene just a few verses later where one like a son of man rising up on clouds before the Ancient of Days and he receives the earth as his kingdom. That's clearly about Jesus, right? And we've covered this ground before when talking about how the disciples watched Jesus ascend his throne in Acts 1. Now all that to say this, Peter was reassuring these believers that Jesus was in fact king, that he would return, and that when he did, he would set everything right, that no injustice would escape his judgment. So Peter brought up the flood again, and he had done that earlier in the letter when talking about God saving Noah, and about how the world that existed then was flooded and ceased to exist. But creation didn't cease to exist. Earth didn't cease to exist. The Greek word Peter used to describe this is the word cosmos. And it means the world or even the universe. But it can also mean worldly affairs. And given what the, we're still standing on the earth today, it seems that what Peter meant was worldly affairs. In other words, the way the world operated was washed away and done away with. The societies and cultures of that time were done away with in the flood and the slate was wiped clean as Noah and his family began with a fresh start. In Genesis 8, 20-21, we read that after the flood, when Noah built an altar before the Lord, that the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. We have to keep this in mind when we consider what Peter could have possibly meant in verse 7 when he wrote that the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire. It's clear that he meant some form of judgment. 
But did he mean the world would be burnt to a crisp and then tossed away like trash? That's certainly how some Christians seem to take this passage. But it's not in keeping with what the Lord said to Noah. It also goes against what Paul wrote in Romans 8, 18-21, saying, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. How can creation be set free from its bondage if it's burned to a crisp and tossed aside? We have to consider other options here. This is where things get deep and we have to read the text for the way it's written, the context, the setting, all that stuff that we talked about. That seems fairly clear that Peter was prophesying here. There's, there's a sense of that, like the, the old prophets in the Old Testament, which he consistently referred back to. Peter was trying to describe an image that he had been given by the Lord. Uh, like we talked about, a moving painting that wasn't quite clear, but gave a sense of what was to come. If we understand it this way, we begin to get a different idea of what he might have meant. Just as the flood wiped out the society and culture that had become corrupt, this fire would bring an end to the corruption of the society and culture in question. And this is where history sort of helps us out, I think. Peter would be martyred very shortly after writing this letter. Within just a few short years after that, the man who would execute both Paul and Peter, Emperor Nero, he would be dead with no real heir to his throne. This led to various generals trying to seize power, and over the next several years, everything was sort of chaotic. As one general after another made their way to Rome to overthrow whoever was there before them. The final general was named Vespasian. He seized power in the year 69, and then in the year 70, he sent his son Titus to handle the uprising that had sort of sprouted and sprung up in Judea during all the chaos. Titus was brutal in his approach. And as we all know, he leveled Jerusalem, including the temple, killing Jews and spilling their blood from the gates of the city to the very steps of the temple. Then he burned the temple to the ground, leaving no stone on another, just as Jesus had said. So when the believers who read Peter's letter found out about the temple being burned down, it would have had a major impact in what they were thinking about what he had written. At that time, the temple was still the focal point of their faith, the identity of not just a nation, but of all the people who shared in that faith. That would include these believers that Peter is writing to. And given his words, it seems likely they would have associated the destruction of Jerusalem and specifically the temple with the fiery judgment of the Lord. The judgment that Peter promised would come to the ungodly. And in spite of how they saw the temple itself, they also knew the folks running it were corrupt. Jesus had made that clear when he cleared it. And throughout his ministry, as he called out the religious leaders in their, for their corruption and for taking advantage of people, the, the day had come. The judgment of the Lord had fallen on the temple and it had suffered 
a fiery end, which meant no more sacrifices, no more means to atone for sin. But we know that Jesus had become the sacrifice to end all sacrifices when he died on the cross. That he had effectively brought an end to the sacrificial system and that it was no longer needed. We also know that Paul repeatedly claimed that believers are now the temple of the Holy Spirit, the place where God dwells, the place where heaven and earth come together, such as in 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, where he wrote, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Peter wanted these believers to hold firm through whatever they faced, so he tried to remind them that there would in fact be a day of judgment, a day when the Lord would address injustice. And it's fairly certain that these believers associated his words with the destruction of the temple just a few years later. Peter even circled around to this idea again in verse 10, describing the shocking message of the heavens passing away with a roar and heavenly bodies being burned up and dissolved. This could still very well be about the destruction of the temple as it was the place where heaven and earth met and the things of the temple were considered the things of God in his heavenly kingdom. But it's also quite possible that Peter's warning of fiery destruction serves another role. That the fire in question might also be the purifying fire of the Spirit. In Matthew 3.11, John the Baptist said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this fulfills what we read in Malachi 3, 1 through 3, where it says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. That's John the Baptist. And then the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. That's Jesus. And the message of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? Check this out. For he is like a refiner's fire. Like a fuller's soap, he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings of righteousness to the Lord. Malachi saw Jesus cleansing the temple and considered him a refiner's fire. And then in Acts 2, specifically in verse 3, the Holy Spirit descends at Pentecost as tongues of fire onto the disciples. According to Peter, this was all complete. The fire of the Lord had come and was the Holy Spirit, purifying and cleansing believers from the inside out, making the place where heaven and earth meet holy. This is what Peter meant when he talked about the Lord not being slow, but being patient so that everyone would have an opportunity to be filled with the Holy Spirit and brought to repentance. He wanted as many as possible to experience the love and mercy and grace of Jesus. Which is what 
we should be wanting as well. When Christians interact with the world in ways that are not loving, in ways that are not bringing light, when Christians spend more time trying to sway culture or politics than they do being actively involved in making life better for a neighbor, when we think boycotting Hollywood or taking over Washington, D.C. are the more important things than being full of grace to our fellow human beings right next to us, when we get distracted from the way of Jesus, from caring about people right where they're at, we're basically saying that we're not too bothered by people perishing. And that's the opposite of what God desires. The Lord wants people to know him and to know mercy and grace and love and forgiveness. This was why Jesus showed up in the first place. So do we want that as well? I'm not asking if we're out there on the street corner screaming Bible verses at people hoping something sticks. I don't think that works. I'm not asking if we have mastered the art of manipulating people into thinking like we do. That's not our goal. So much of Christianity in America seems to have been derailed at some point and has spent the years since just sort of flailing at the world that's passing us by with silly techniques instead of proclaiming Jesus as the risen and reigning king by the way that we live. We're focusing all our attention in the wrong direction. Instead of displaying what the kingdom of God is like by the way we live and interacting with others, we have picked up the tools of the world and attempted to wield them for our own purposes. Apparently, Peter was concerned about this as well. In verse, uh, verses 11 through 14, he encouraged these believers to spend their time focusing on holiness and godliness as a sort of window looking out toward a new heavens and new earth. I've said before, and I will keep saying it, until Jesus returns, we are the place where heaven and earth meet. We are the bit of the new heavens and earth that already exists. Which means holiness and godliness matter. Not as a means of gaining or keeping our salvation, that's not the issue but as a means of being made more and more like Jesus so the world will know what his kingdom looks like. We can live wrong and make mistakes and bad choices and still be loved by God. That's not the question we should be asking, though. We should be asking if we can be selfless and servant-minded and ready to sacrifice for the sake of others because that's what Jesus did. We don't have to be perfect. Lord knows I'm not. But we should absolutely be stumbling forward. We should be waking up every day with a prayer that God would be seen in us that day. In our words and in our actions. That we would be the best part of someone else's day. That the people we come into contact with would be thankful for our presence in their lives. As Peter closed this letter, he mentioned the fact that there were those who misunderstood Paul and that there were those among them who would take his words out of context and twist them for their own benefit. In a sense, Peter was saying that they did the same thing to Paul that they were doing to all the other apostles and prophets uh, and even Jesus himself. And he wanted these believers to be aware of it, to see it for what it was and to avoid it. 
And I want to wrap up our study in Peter's letters the same way, by encouraging each and every one of us to be awake and aware of what we have been taught and where we might have got things wrong, where we might have been taught wrong in the past. To be mindful of not just what we believe, but of why we believe it. So that Peter's words to these first believers might ring in our ears as we take on the, the challenge of living like Jesus in a world that would still crucify him today if it got the chance. Will you pray with me?